Uh, Eric, what are you doing? I, if you must know, I am communing with nature. By standing really still outside? I am a tree. Oh, you're a tree now. That's how I commune. Okay. Um, is that why you're letting your dog pee on you? Yes. Okay. Not unlike a tree. Right. No, exactly. And why you've got birds kind of rustling around and trying to peck into your skin a little bit. Not trying. Not trying. But yes. Okay. They're succeeding. Yes. Yeah. So, this is... What? Are you, like, trying to be one with nature? Shh, or? Shh, 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 you know, trees don't talk. No, no, no. They don't, but they shush. They do shush. You're so weird. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmon. And I am Sarah Ashley. Well, howdy-do. Hey, Eric. It's, it's been so long. I know it's been so long. It's actually nice to have another person to do the episode with. Oh, yes, yes. We, we, we did abandon you, didn't we? Yeah, yeah a little bit. Well, you know. Accidents happen. happen. Yeah. yeah, it's a happy accident. A happy accident. Our listeners enjoyed your episode. I sure hope so. We It's very meta. We've gotten lots of feedback on feedback on feedback yeah yeah we got feedback about the feedback episode so yeah. that was nice if you have more feedback about feedback please give us yeah. uh, feedback at our feedback page yeah that'd be great you can feed us the back all over the place i don't even know what that means fat back people eat fat back that's a thing Ooh. it's like bacon oh but thicker cut it's not human though is it no it's pig oh, thank god yeah okay it could be human <laughs> That's we'll save that for the Donner Party episode. Okay. Uh, Brian and, isn't here. No, 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 he's not. Because no. Brian is still doing rehearsals right now for a show. So unfortunately, the timing didn't work out for him to hop on this episode either. But that's okay because he will be back next time. Yes, Br- Brian's one man show. I'm talking at the audience. <laughs> Um, I don't think that's the name of his one man show. Seven and a half hours long. Oh my and god. There are three. And a half intermissions. Wow. There's a, there's a final intermission a half hour before the mm-hmm. end of the show. Yeah. And it's necessary, I'll tell you that. Yeah. And, and like a good chunk of what he's actually doing in this one-man show is impressions of, you know, Batman, yeah. walk-in. There's lots of whooping, too. He's random, whoop! Yeah. Whoop! Whoa. <laughs> it's it's yeah. quite alarming. Anyhow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, Brian, Brian is... Um, He's, He's rehearsing for yet another play. Yeah. Yet That's yet the life of play. a working actor. Yeah, very good. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but what are we talking about today? Well, we actually got some good feedback from a few people um, kind of on uh, topics related to this one and this one specifically. So, I mean, it all kind of worked out to just talk about it all together. But we're going to be talking today about the history of the National Park System. Yay. Woohoo. Woohoo. Something that was truly invented by Americans and not just claimed to be invented by Americans. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. In fact, it's it's the first time in history uh, something like this happened. Yeah, I was right really, really anticipating you, though, coming in with saying, well, did you know that the actual first national park was created in ancient Egypt? Well, you know, fun. <laughs> it's so funny, Sarah, that you happen to say that. Oh, because <laughs> depending on your on your definition of a national park, right, Egypt in ancient times was not not a modern nation. Sure. However, the mm-hmm. pyramids at Giza were so popular that eventually they fu- they hired a full-time staff 
of, of priests to essentially monitor the site and security. Sure. And they acted as tour guides. And people would go there on pilgrimages and and it was it was a popular location. That still sounds like private tourist trade. Was it was it monitored by the government? No. Well, in, in as much as the government was the the religious organization of Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. The temple mm-hmm. system was was controlled by the pharaoh. So yeah, it was absolutely a government organization. So in that sense, uh-huh. the pyramids truly were the the first attempt uh-huh. at something like a national park. Okay. We're not calling it a national park directly no. because we still want to give credit to America for this one. Well, right. That's exactly right. Um, what we're talking about is the first time in history where a, a modern nation said, hey, we see these areas of, of wild, mm-hmm. of uncontaminated land, and they're important. We recognize their importance. We want to preserve them for future generations as they are. And so we are going to protect them and we're going to make it so that it's a law. Yes. It is legally against the law to own it, any of it privately. Yes. And uh, and we're going to do this and, and no one's largely going to care around the world for a little while mm-hmm. until people picked up on the idea. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the genesis, the start of it all was right here in these United States. And now there are thousands of national parks outside of the United States and yes. countries around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are preserved for future generations. And, hey, that's pretty fantastic. That is pretty cool. Um, So let's kind of talk about where this idea came from. You know, we were basically, as a country, working really hard on Western expansion, obviously, fulfilling manifest destiny and pushing people out of their homelands and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, Systematic genocide. Whatever. Uh, We'll talk about that later. (laughs) Um, And we were... You know, basically finding, yes, as you said, these wild areas that kind of were um, pristine and sort of capturing something from long ago. And actually, George Catlin, who is a Mm -hmm. a landscape artist, um, he actually was kind of the first person to really suggest the idea of doing a preservation of a certain area of land with some government oversight. Right. Um, And more specifically, the way he envisioned it would be a pristine area of where people could, uh, you know, look onto it, but it was going to be preserved for both nature and the indigenous populations there as well. Which so, is largely why it was ignored. Yeah. <laughs> that one did not work out because people were like, well, we want to see the land. We don't want to see the people because racism. Um, but so the idea, though, that of him being a landscape artist was really important. Audubon was also a landscape artist mm-hmm. at this point, mm-hmm. um, did more than just birds. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, and there and was more a- than just really long stretches of highway. Right. Oh, God. Hey, oh, come on. It's been get, a while since I've been on the mic. Get out of here. No, you no, get no. Out there's, of like, here. there's like 14 more of those coming. <laughs> All right. So you just live with it. Put your helmets on, it. everybody. <laughs> um, and also, uh, another really large movement at the time is transcendentalism. Right. And the idea of uh, being a self reliant individual and being kind of one and and symbiotic with nature and understanding the spiritual aspect between the the blank slate that is man and the blank slate that is nature and the purity of it um and those you know yeah. finding uh like Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson like these like great writers who you know were writing basically writing books while in the wild living off the land yeah yeah. And in, in doing so, you combine all these ideas together and you have the, the first beginnings of environmentalism and and, con, and uh, 
conservationism. Conservationism. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and there's there's several people who are responsible for this. The story of national parks is really a story of people and their passions and their determination to move forward ideas into reality. Yeah. Uh, and if it wasn't for those individuals, then that's all these all this ever would have been was just ideas. Oh, wouldn't right. it be nice if this was a national park? And and a lot of people thought that way for a while until we, we finally moved things forward. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Yosemite because this is a, a, a big starting point for it's us. It's a huge starting point. And like many footnotes in, in history, uh, human history, this begins with genocide and forced relocation. Yep. Yay! Hooray! So uh, in 1851... Members of the Mariposa Battalion, who were essentially a, a gang of hired thugs, whose responsibility it was to go through the, the Sierras in California and, and kick out the local populace uh, by any means necessary, which usually involved terror and, and you know, murdering people yeah. and, and scaring them half to death and forcing them to leave their homes. They were the first of... Uh, of, you know, first white men, essentially, to see Yosemite Valley and yeah. for its grandeur and, Which, and everything that it was. if any of you have ever been to Yosemite, or if you have not been, I really suggest that you go. Yes. If you ever have an opportunity, because it is one of the most beautiful places on the planet I've ever been to. And, you know, if you folks are new to the show, then you may not be aware that both Sarah and I live here in, in beautiful, sunny California. Mm -hmm. And both of us have frequented Yosemite Valley and and the Yosemite Highlands, and they're absolutely and the, beautiful. Just, and the Sierras and the Eastern Sierras. And, in fact, I was just there uh, a couple of months ago when nice. I was on vacation. Mm -hmm. uh, Martha and I, we have a cabin up in Arnold, which is a small community up in the Sierra Nevadas. Mm -hmm. And even though it was two hours away, we didn't have any kids that weekend, so we're like, screw it, who cares? Yeah. And we drove down to Yosemite and was just after uh, some snow melts and and rain, mm -hmm. uh, unseasonably ra late rain that we had that year. And wow, you yeah. know, I, I could easily see myself walking into Yosemite Valley back before all this development had happened, before there was a, a road to mm -hmm. drive in there and just being so blown away. And I've been there, you know, countless times, a whole bunch of times in my life. And yet every time I go into Yosemite Valley, it absolutely blows my mind the yeah. same way over and over again. And I had never seen falls flowing like this before. Like I had never mm -hmm. seen Bridal Veil Falls looking like a bridal veil and yeah. Lower Yosemite was just rushing. That's awesome. Uh, it was, it was gorgeous. And those first uh, individuals to, to lay eyes upon it, uh, also felt moved. Yeah, and and they were listening. They were listening to the to the natives around them, the, the very people that they were forcing out, out of this yeah. area, and they were listening for a name, trying to figure out a name of this area that they were they were walking into. And the name that they took from that was Yosemite. Mm -hmm. Yosemite is not what the natives called this land. What there was were, the there were, name? Well, the word for it was. Uh, a wanachi, and it means a wide open mouth, or a, mm. a, you know, because when sure. you go into the Yosemite Valley, it's just oh, yeah. how it is. It's just one big valley, yeah. And the Awani were these people mm -hmm. who inhabited this area, so it was also yeah. named after themselves. You know, they had a deep mm -hmm. uh, spiritual connection to this area. Yosemite means um, those who are killers. Oh God! And so the, the, they kept making reference to those who are killers because they're talking about the, the Maritosa yeah. Battalion who was nearby. Yeah. Uh, and and they stupidly adopted the name. And so now Yosemite is branded 
forever. And honestly, the Iwani is a hotel in Yosemite Valley. Yeah. (laughs) So there you go. There you go. Um, There's talk, as there is with most national parks that have a name that has been Mm -hmm. um, added to it. Yeah. Taken away from its original native name to, to potentially move it back. But I almost feel like in this particular case, Yosemite... And the name that it has and the meaning it has behind it mm. is more of a tribute yeah. to the to the atrocities that were committed than anything. Yeah. And it's a reminder. Mm-hmm. It's a reminder more than anything. For sure. Anyhow, that was in 1851. Yeah. And actually, and not so long after that, people were absolutely being brought in there for a tourist trade because they saw, God, this place is so pretty. We need everybody to see this. And, and one guy who in particular who was doing all this was a businessman named uh, James Mason Hutchings. Yeah. And this guy was an opportunist to a fault. Like, he was very much a proponent and an active advocate for Yosemite and its potential for what he could source money from. Few, few people probably loved Yosemite more than Hutchings. Yeah. But few people would exploit Yosemite in its early years more than Hutchings. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but... James Mason Hutchings was the reason why John Muir came to Yosemite in the first place. Yeah. So John Muir was, um, you know, a, just a nature man through and through. This guy loved nature and he had settled out um, in San Francisco. He made friends with Hutchings, came out to Yosemite, and he was brought out to basically build a sawmill out there. And he did so and he ended up living in a cabin that he built alongside the river for like three years just living off the land yeah and enjoying the nature and everything around him and and reading thoreau while you know (laughs) while enjoying everything that thoreau was writing about writing about nature himself and really kind of embracing um that sort of lifestyle and um he basically helped promote yosemite and the idea of keeping this as a preserved piece of land the, the story of the first chapter of our national parks mm-hmm. is it almost mirrors exactly the story of, of John Muir's life. Yeah. And, you know, he was such an interesting individual. He was born, uh, he was a Scottish immigrant. He was born in Scotland. He came to the United States at a very young age along with his family. Mm-hmm. His father was a preacher and a very strict and highly abusive individual, forcing Muir to read and memorize you know, biblical texts to the to the point where he could probably recite the entire first, you know, right. testament by memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's how, how extreme this went. But it also made Mir into the man that he was, a highly convicted, highly spiritual mm-hmm. individual yeah. uh, who was also, quite frankly, a genius. He was yeah. absolutely brilliant. He could be put in front of anything and understand its workings and reproduce that uh, in the most elegant and and perfect way possible. And mm-hmm. so that's why he was brought in to, to build, build this mill, yeah. because that's just the kind of person he was. He had mm-hmm. a brain for that. And he yeah. made a name for himself doing these kind of things. Yeah. He also had a, a rather severe work-related incident where he almost lost his sight. Mm-hmm. And some of his writings, because he wrote everything about his life, he constantly kept journals and was constantly writing. Uh, historians suggest that that was a pivotal moment in his life where he reevaluated his self-worth and reevaluated his his appreciation for nature mm-hmm. and literally said, you know what? I'm going to go out for a walk. Yeah. I'm going to walk my ass down to Florida. <laughs> yeah, a he, thousand did, miles. he did a thousand miles from Kentucky to Florida. And he freaking walked it. 
this guy's my hero. And then he decides, you know what? I'm going to walk my ass to South America and then changes his mind. He got, he actually got the flu and got a fever and decided, you know what? That's probably going to happen down there. I'm probably going to die. So, hey, California seems great. Right. Exactly. And that's where he got his start moving up to San Francisco and then moving into Yosemite. That's right. In Um, fact, he, he lands in San Francisco Bay. Yeah. And he gets off the ship and he's like... I want to go somewhere. People are like, okay, well, where do you want to go? He says, says, anywhere wild. Yeah. I just want to go wild. Yeah. Um, And it's really cool because so at this point when Don Muir does get out there, um, Abraham Lincoln had already put Yosemite under the protection of the California state. Yeah. This was in 1869 that Muir made his way out. It was in 1865. Sorry, 1864, pardon me, Mm -hmm. that Lincoln um, put both the Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias. Right. As part of that. And it was basically because of the behest of these tourists who were going and saying, God, this place is really beautiful. We should do something to kind of protect it from being, um, you know, over overworked. Also, uh, California Senator Conus was also yeah. was largely responsible for that, mm-hmm. um, for pushing forward this, this movement. Yeah, yeah. So eventually Muir gets the idea that he wants to go and travel around a little bit more. So he ends up um, making his way up to Alaska, um, more specifically to Glacier Bay. And he'd spend some time studying glaciers and geology while he's up there. And in the meantime, Hutchings was getting himself in a bunch of trouble. Yeah. um, Because uh, in 1872, Ulysses S. Grant, now president, uh, made Yellowstone uh, the world's actual first national park. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. That that's that's a critical yes. piece of this. We will puzzle. get back to that, but I want to talk about the point that people are really on the, on point and laws are falling into place about needing to protect this land. So Hutchings, right. Right. as Yosemite is becoming um, is starting to almost become a national park. It's getting there. He gets himself into a lot of trouble because he's like, look, I know this is protected land, but I'm one of the first people who brought tourists here. So I am going to claim 160 acres for myself. That's cool. Right. And they're like, no, 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 no. no." And he's like, no, no, I'm entitled to it. That's mine. And and he takes this fight to Congress. He takes it to Congress. And not just that, but also the idea of he wants to build buildings on it and really exploit the tourist trade on it. And they're like, no, you really, you can't do it. They end up taking it to Supreme Court. Supreme Court banishes him from Yosemite flat out in uh, 1875. And I think that was the terminology used. Yeah. I think they, the, the, he, he, he was literally banished. Literally banished in 1875 from stepping foot in Yosemite again because he was being a greedy little mofo. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, John Muir, who had spent his time in Yosemite during all of this, was picking up the pieces, really. He was he was brought in and he had made vast improvements to the park mm-hmm. and was setting up plans to 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 create much more uh, many more roads to essentially divert tourist traffic away from these areas that needed to be preserved and saved. Yeah. Uh, and take them to places where they'd be less likely to cause problems. He was mm-hmm. building fences around trees, he was making improvements to the living conditions that were there. He was mm-hmm. doing a lot of really good stuff. He got so sick and fed up with it. That's what drove him out out to Alaska. That's what got him to leave was this garbage with Hutchings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And after Hutchings had left, Muir would make his visits back to Yosemite. Oh, yeah. And he came back in 1889 and found it completely neglected and polluted. Yeah. Um, Well, that's another chapter. That is another chapter. So let's, okay, let's talk about Yellowstone for a minute. Because Yellowstone is. Uh, as you stated, Cali- or California, excuse me. America's. Got to get out of my, my America's and the world's first, first national park. National park, that's right. 
And it's so funny because many of the earliest, um, many of the earliest descriptions of Yellowstone come to us from these wild cowboy types, mm -hmm. these mountain men, these people who are going out there, who are breaking away from the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yeah. That was one of the first examples of, of a description of this area well, and, and others. There were other people who were settling out there too. There were some, there were like early settlers who were, um, who had been there for a long time before it even became a park. And yeah. not to mention the amount of like natives that were living there as well. But but there were other folks who were who were reporting on this, who mm -hmm. were coming back into yeah. civilization right out of the wild and saying, mm -hmm. hey, there's this crazy place where there's geysers shooting off steaming hot water all the time. And there's bubbling uh, mud puddles full of sulfur. And, and mm -hmm. there's these crazy formations coming out of the water and everything's steaming all around it. And people thought that they were mad. Yeah. People thought they were suffering from some sort of delusion due a lack of like <laughs> malnutrition or something, right? And and that what they were describing was so hell-like, yeah. That newspapers refused to print it because they thought the readers would read it and think they were mad. Like they was the end of times that happening over in there. Right. <laughs> uh, that is until you have uh, later expeditions that are sent out by uh, the Washburn expeditions, including the uh, Truman Everett's, mm -hmm. and and this expedition that goes out brings back. Incredible reports of Yellowstone. Yes. This is this is real stuff. The people who are going there are being believed, uh, and they're they're very much um, taken in by their surroundings. So mm -hmm. much so that poor Truman Everett's one of the expedition members ends up getting lost. Yeah, and gets for lost for thirty-seven 30 days. Seven days, and he lives. <laughs> and here's the crazy thing: this was in the middle of winter. I know. Oh my god. And and it was a it was an early winter, but it was a harsh onset. Yeah. And he would later, after surviving, um, come back and tell these fantastic stories that were more incredible than anything the the papers could think up on their own. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'll, I'll spare the readers the, or listeners the full details. But there were times when he was you know living in trees to escape from wildlife. He was trying to warm himself next to geysers because yeah. it was so cold that he was sleeping next to these geysers oh trying God, to warm himself. So dangerous. In the middle of the night, he'd wake up with searing burns on the, uh, his yeah. sides, Yeah, but he was alive. Yeah. Uh, and when they found him, he was delirious. He was horrible. He was 50 pounds. Oh he weighed gosh. 50 pounds and suffered severe frostbite to his hands Jeez and feet. Louise. But he lived and his story helped bring even more attention to uh yeah, to at, national parks. Uh, he was he was, in, he was gone in he was gone in eighteen seventy. Um and then fo the following year, eighteen seventy one, the USGS director actually led an expedition down there. Um, Fer Ferdin Ferdinand Hayden. Hayden, yeah. Yeah. Hayden, excuse me. Um because he was like, look, this place is obviously really interesting. There's a lot going on there. What's the actual value of it? Yeah. And he's like, you know, for a scientific purpose, for a pres preservation purpose, what is, what's the real value? And apparently good enough because the following year, that's when it gets signed in to being the first national park. It is the largest concentration of geothermal activity mm -hmm. in the world. Yep. In fact, uh, recent studies have found that it is a, uh, uh, an active super volcano essentially. Mm -hmm. And that... If it were to erupt, which it may do so sometime in the next like ten or fifteen thousand years, something like that. Let's not talk about that. Oh, sorry. 
My bad. <laughs> That's okay. I'm just like, I just. Do you want to cut that? No, no, it's fine. Okay. I just, I really don't care that much. But I'm like, you know I what? literally just got chills when you were like, volcanoes exploding. I'm like, let's stop talking about volcanoes. So sorry. <laughs> this is like a xenomorph moment with Brian. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Sarah, does, you know, Sarah does not like volcanoes. And we're totally moving past this as if it never <laughs> happened. Yeah, <laughs> let me, let me <laughs> point it out this way, though. My, my boyfriend's parents are geologists. Vol- magma, volcanic rock, all this other stuff gets talked about all the time. It's just something I'm trying to get past and get used to. Okay, this is good. But this is a good first step, but you know what? We're moving on. <laughs> we, got, we, we got a show to record. We are good. <laughs> we're going to move on from here. Uh, <laughs> but Yellowstone, you know, despite its terrors for, for Sarah, is a <laughs> is a truly incredible place. No, absolutely. Like, scientifically speaking, that's amazing. And let's, and let's highlight something for our listeners, because this is important. America is a very, very young country, as our listeners should know by now. Yes. It's a very young country. It's only been around for a little more than 200 years, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, at, and at this stage in our history, even less so. And we had a lot of, you know, criticism thrown our way by the, by the powerful kingdoms and nations of Europe at this time, mm-hmm. uh, more or less ridiculing us for our lack of culture. Yeah. That we did not have the great monuments uh, of Greece and Egypt. We did not have the glorious cathedrals of France and England. And, and England. all of these things that those people have are man-made. That's right. But what we had an abundance of were these beautiful constructs of nature. Yes. Were these 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 cathedrals of nature's, as they were mm-hmm. oftentimes referred to, yeah. in this amazing and grand and untouched landscape at yeah. this time, untouched, mostly untouched. Well, and also keeping in mind too that this is still a semi-colonial kind of world as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, in some areas, extremely still colonial, you know. But the idea of, you know, the taming the wilds, the wild frontier, and you know, this is post-Civil War when, you know, taming the wild meant slavery. People are not all about slavery at this point. Um, and the idea of preserving the wild, right? So there's like a very clear shift in mindset right now. Yeah. Um, and as momentous yeah. an event as this was, as uh-huh. Yellowstone becoming the first national park, yeah. more or less nobody cared. Congress treated it like another check mark on the agenda. Mm-hmm. And it did not receive the fanfare it deserved. Right. There were only a few people who truly appreciated it. And of course that would eventually change, but it was a long road to get there. And let's 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 do that. Let's continue on this road. Because mm-hmm. we still got a lot to talk about. Here. Yeah, that's true. We do have a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um so we talked about Mira coming back to Yosemite um after Hutchings has been gone for a while. Um, and he's no longer friends with Hutchings at this point anyway. Oh, yeah. Um, they split up a while back. They split up way back. But he came back and he found out that it was pretty much neglected and polluted and just in really poor care. Yeah. Um, because it, at this point it was only being somewhat managed by the state. But, you know, trees were still being cut down. All that other stuff was still being used. So he encouraged um, President Harrison to make Yosemite a national park in 1890. Which he does, which is awesome. Um, well, he does, but only to a certain degree, because it, what what we found with Mir coming back was that the highlands were also being neglected, and there was yeah. a lot of severe ecological damage being done by yeah. sheep being introduced. Because yes. sheep are one of the most destructive, freaking creatures in the world. You don't think it? You're sitting there eating that euro, 
you know, you're like, man. God, gyros are delicious. Sheep are good. <laughs> and they are tasty. Yeah. But they're super destructive. Everywhere they've been brought in the world, they have well, disrupted. Well, that's to be to be fair, it's, you could say the same thing about cows in certain areas. Any and grazing animal. Stuff. Yeah. Any grazing animal. Agriculture in general is going to completely change a landscape. It's gone done, going to screw it all up. It's just going to do a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and that's exactly how, what John Muir said. There no, we that's go. That's not what he said at all. Um, but but yeah. he, he made his point, And so Yosemite Park yeah. consisted of the Yosemite Highlands. Mm-hmm. What it did not consist of was Yosemite Valley right. and, and the Mariposa Grove. Yeah. Those would not be re- it were assimilated and introduced into the park until later. Instead, mm-hmm. they were still being being manned or not manned managed excuse me yeah by the state yes and poorly so yes well and one thing that helped is he was able to find a whole group of like-minded people who are also interested in kind of uh you know conserving and protecting these areas um and at the behest of a professor at uc berkeley he helped co-found the sierra club which was originally started out to be a group of hikers uh, people who just like to go hang out in the Sierra Mountain Range. Um, and then they all turned into wild advocates and became the giant conservation club that we know them to be now. But that yeah. was started by John Muir in, in 1892. That's right. He would be made their first president. And mm-hmm. He would serve uh, very faithfully in that role for many yeah. years. He also helped preserve the Sequoia National Park, too, while he was at it. So yeah. doing all kinds of stuff and getting all kinds of things named after him. Like there's the John Muir Woods here in San Francisco. and The, the, the Muir Woods National Monument. Yeah. If you've never been, you've seen it. And you've seen it in the Planet of the Apes movies, the most recent Planet of the Apes movies. That's where they've done uh, most of their principal yeah. shooting when they were outdoors. Yeah, you've seen it in a bunch of movies, I guarantee it. Yeah, and it's it's gorgeous. It's Beautiful. one of my favorite places to go. It's absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. Uh, so 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 go there yep. right now. Right now, we're going we're, we're gonna to pause recording, and you're going to go. Yes. And welcome back. Welcome back. All we right. missed you. Um. So let's actually <laughs> talk about somebody who was a... Uh, somebody who learned a lot from John Muir... Somebody that you guys have talked about on the podcast before. Uh, I think I know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, but he actually spent some time camping in Yosemite with John Muir himself and uh, actually, you know, visited Yellowstone and all that stuff. But the good old Teddy Roosevelt. Yes. In fact, we, we did a whole episode on Teddy Roosevelt. If Pre-me. you want to go back and, and have a listen to that. Pre-Sarah, though, so it's less Pre-Sarah. entertaining. Pre-Sarah. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, if it was, we probably wouldn't have had as much criticism as we did for that episode. <laughs> Uh, we will state on record now, yes, Roosevelt did things that were not the greatest as yes. well as good things, you know, like every single president in history. Like every person. single every human. Single, oh, that's right. He was every, a human. <laughs> every single human God, in history. forget these things. Um, but Roosevelt uh, was absolutely a passionate supporter of the National Park idea. Yes. And and a and the the key element to really bringing the government into expanding the national well park system. at least getting people to be enthusiastic about it. Right. Um, well, remember, he's, you know, we talked. Sorry, no, no, I was just saying he's one of the basically the system's greatest patrons. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and and largely is due to his early life and the fact that he was a weak and very sickly person who wanted to strengthen himself, and so at the age of twenty four sends himself out into the Dakota territories and does exactly that and try to live as a cowboy and man's up, man's up, start killing. And stuff, <laughs> kill lots of things over here, and kill yeah. lots of things over here, cut Gender heads off. <laughs> <laughs> he was actually the inspiration um, for He-Man. There you go. Very little people know that. Yeah. And also mm-hmm. uh, both Hulk Hogan and um, who was the guy with the sunglasses? I can't remember his name. The guy with the sunglasses? You know, lots of guys wore sunglasses. You know, from the 80s, wrestler. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and and he was their inspiration. Okay. Um, 
he uh, he did spend time with John Muir. In fact, they they went on a camping trip together mm-hmm. in Yosemite National Park because it yep. was a national park by that time. This was in 1903, mm-hmm. and they had this this great trip. In fact. Before that, uh, Roosevelt, right when he had become president, more or less, decides he's going to go out and go on a, a camping trip in Yellowstone. And he goes rogue. Like, he leaves the Secret Service behind. He mm-hmm. just goes and does his own thing. He yep. lives out there for, like, one day on his own, yep. just doing his thing. President Roosevelt in nature. Mm-hmm. And he just sits there and has his lunch and watches deer and all sorts of stuff. It's fun. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it's cool. So cool. And when he's out there with Mira and they're sitting around this campfire and they've more or less just like blown off all these these important people they're supposed to be hanging out with, they have a really earnest conversation. Um, and, you know, he's like, Mira, how, how can you just go out here and, and live out here like this the way that you do? You know, don't you find it to be really difficult to, to live like this? And he's like, well, how can you you know, live the way you do just going and, and indiscriminately killing animals the way that you do? Yeah. And, and like, this is, this is, like a brutally honest conversation. Yeah. And yet the two men leave that campfire stronger and, and more uh, more convinced that each one is right. Yeah. In a way. Which does not happen on the internet these days. No. It sure doesn't. <laughs> that's, how, that's apparently how conversations and comment sections need to happen. Comment sections <laughs> need to be taken into like circles in the woods where people can discuss things calmly and you, understand each other better. You shouldn't be able to log off and do anything else on your device until you've come to a, a reasonable... Yes. Uh, exactly. Conclusion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, we can make that happen. But these things, you know, this experience really did have a huge impact on him because basically during his administration, Roosevelt created 18 national monuments, four national game refuges, 51 bird sanctuaries, and over 100 million acres of national forest. 100 million yes. acres. He was just like... I like that. Preserve that. I like that. Preserve that. <laughs> and he was basically trying to exercise as much power as he could to really keep as much of America protected as he could. And how was he able to do that, Eric? So one of the most important acts passed during his presidency uh, was the Antiquities Act of 1906. And something near and dear to my own heart, as you might imagine, because as we began to expand westward into the United States, into these territories, you ended up having these pot hunters go out there and, and more or less screw up all these, you know, important Native American sites mm-hmm. uh, named as such because they would be digging up, you know, clay pots and selling them for, you know, value to tourists and what have you. Well, and, and I mean, basically a lot of that had to do with the tourist trade and people were trying to, um, tourists didn't want to go see a place where people lived. Yeah. They wanted to go see untouched nature. So when they pushed out Native Americans, they also completely removed any trace of them being there. Yeah. Uh, but they couldn't do so very easily in places like Mesa Grande. Yeah. Uh, and Mesa Verde, where you had these beautiful um, cave dwellings that were you know, built right into these massive overhangs mm-hmm. uh, of, of outcropping rock. And... You found that, uh, in particular, at Mesa Verde, you had a, a group of brothers who were pot hunters initially, but eventually became kind of amateur archaeologists, if you will. And uh, these were the, the Weathers brothers. They came in, they started excavating, and in doing so, they found um, some some attract- attraction to a, a Swedish-born archaeologist who, who came by, started to apprentice them, essentially use them as labor for excavating and taking out these artifacts uh, and then decides to ship them 
back to Europe yeah. where he'll display them and release his papers and research on it. And where do they go? Where do they stop on their way? Tell me. Durango, Colorado. Sean! Yay! Durango, where good old trusty editor lives. That's right. Uh, I bet you didn't know that one, Sean. Or actually, you probably did. Yeah. Uh, Sean's very Sean smart. knows a lot of stuff about he Durango. Does. He really does. He is a very good Durangatang. He is. He's quite proud of the part of the country that he lives in, as, yep. as he should be, because yep. Durango, while I've never been, looks, is a very lovely place. Looks gorgeous in pictures. It's got Sean. It's got Sean. So, so that's it's already got its local attraction. Pretty much. So they, he seriously should get paid just for people to go gawk at him and listen to him. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. And he um, would totally love it, too. <laughs> but this whole process, because they stopped this guy, they stopped him, and they said, you know what? There's actually nothing that we can do to stop you. You yeah. haven't you haven't broken any laws. You're being kind of a dick because mm-hmm. uh, you're taking history away from our country and going to go display it in another country and take all the credit for it. Um, but he's like, well, stop me. And they couldn't. And so this was one example that would lead to the, the need to have this act passed and yeah. the powers that it gave the president. Mm-hmm. Because before this, leading up to getting just the first four national parks made was such a convoluted mess yeah. in Congress. Yeah. And all the backdoor dealing that had to be done, all the red tape that had to be cut through, all the, the garbage that had to be put up with, and and the defaming of people who were yeah. trying to be proponents of this, right? right? Nasty political garbage yeah, could more or less be ignored. True. And I mean, if you look at it, it's still kind of a process to turn things into national parks. So, I mean, if the president does have authority with the Antiquities Act to proclaim national monuments on lands already under federal jurisdiction. Yes. So that's the that's the clarification there. So that's where his power really comes in. But the additions to the national park system are generally made through acts of Congress. And um, they can really only be created through acts of Congress. But the Secretary of the Interior is usually asked by Congress for some recommendations on proposed additions. And then the secretary is counseled in turn by the National Park System Advisory Board. Right. So, and that's compi- that's comprised of private citizens. So it's kind of like, it, it takes a, a few steps to work its way up to become passed, but that's how it happens now. Right. But thanks to the Antiquities Act, people like Roosevelt could just go and more or less yeah. create national monuments. Yes. And could do so without having all that process to go through. Mm -hmm. And many of those national monuments would later pass and become national parks in their own right or preserve today's national monuments. Some of the most impressive examples are the horribly named Devil's Tower, which if you've ever seen uh, 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 Steven Spielberg's uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know what I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. looks like a a, a giant uh, tree trunk. Yeah. But massive, super massive. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, we... We, we named it the most racist thing possible. Uh, that by itself, though, let's just leave that alone. Yeah. Uh, we will say that uh, all the national monuments that were created out of that process are, are still preserved today. Yes. Um, and, and that's important because it, it now gave not just power to do it, but it gave an expectation that that would be happening for future yeah. presidents. Right. Yeah. So this was uh, this was a big deal. Um, so even though there was a swelling number of parks during this time, thanks to Teddy Roosevelt, um, there wasn't really anything, 
any kind of organization who was really there to manage it. In fact, the military had to be brought in in situations just to control the flow of tourists in yeah. Yosemite Valley. Yeah. Uh, and, and and they stayed there for 30 years. Yeah. They had a, they had a cavalry presence, not just there, but also in California in the three national parks that were there at the mm-hmm. time. Um, including the the relocation of the Buffalo Soldiers. Right. Uh, that was one of their post Civil War responsibilities was to come in and and yeah. you know manage that uh, that that flow of not just tourists but also the people around these parks who were settlers who were Trying living to around encroach them. In, yeah. Yeah, and they were either doing illegal grazing or poaching. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of people lost their lives for not a lot of pay and and. Yeah, you know, it was not a good system. No, and and, and it, it was it, a brave system. The people who were doing it were great people. Right, but they deserve better. And there's also no so minimal protection of what they could do, but also no funding. Yeah, no um, money. So, you know what they needed to do was basically kind of en- enforce the future of these parks in the system. And they, um, you know, a lot of people were trying to bring in profits to the system by using private commercial interests a lot of times, hotels, railroads coming through, uh, ranches, sawmills, etc. Um, but it was, you know, they were, these people were basically exploiting the resources and were doing so kind of unchecked. Um, in fact, you had one man named uh, Gifford Pinchett, mm. who was the head of the U.S. Forest Service, and he was somebody who had a very interesting take on how we should be using these national parks. Um, in some regards, he had a lot to, he had a lot in common with John Muir, who he was actually friends with, um, in the sense that they both wanted these areas to be protected and, uh, preserved. Yes. But and they not, very... and not to be used wildly, <laughs> but whereas John Muir said, let's leave them completely pristine. Yeah. Uh, Pinchard said, no, there's resources here that we could use, and we should be using them to serve uh, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Right. But we should do so responsibly, was responsibly. his Responsibly. Sustainably. Yeah. And so he wanted, he you know, he agreed with having a certain level of deforestation happening here for timber. Um, and also, the most popular uh, thing was damming. Yeah. And using it to help uh, drive water to more populous areas. And that became a really big point of contention. And actually, Muir and Pinchett were spent a lot of time writing articles in very popular magazines, debating with each other in public about how these spaces should be used. Um, and and Pinchett's philosophy ultimately won over uh, Woodrow Wilson yeah. to a certain extent because um, to this day – San Francisco Bay Area gets its water from um, Hetch, Hatchy, Hetch Hetchy Valley, which is near Yosemite. Um, and that was dammed up in 1913, and we've been getting our water there since. And we definitely need it. We definitely need it. Especially uh, with all the droughts. Yeah, on. yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I understand the value of that. And mm-hmm. obviously it was the much more popular government choice. Yes. Right? It, it added an extra level of value to a system that is focused in a very material world, whereas Mir was focused in a very spiritual world. Yes. You know, he communed very deeply with nature. It's yeah. where he saw, in his own, you know, words, the the, the true workings of God. You yeah. Know, this is where he, he really connected with. Well, and, and it was, you know, where Pinchett wants to literally feed people 
Muir said, well, this should be feeding their souls. <laughs> yeah. Is really what it boiled down to. Not feeding them in a literal sense, but feeding their souls. And, and you know, they both have their problems. With Pinchant's system, it's easy for corruption to be yes. finding its way in and did so mm-hmm. periodically and had to constantly be under check. Whereas with Mira's system, it's difficult to police that. Yeah. And therefore, it's also easy to exploit. So that nobody really had the best possible solution area. to it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. the fact that they were having the conversation, I think, is the most yeah. significant part. Because that got people thinking. It did. And it brought up other issues um, that related to the environment, including also the protection of, of the wildlife yes. who are living in these parks. Yeah. Um, There were earlier attempts, I just have to mention this because it's it's so interesting, Mm -hmm. Uh, back in the 1880s and 1890s, there were voices in the wilderness coming out and saying, stop killing birds for your freaking Victorian hats. Oh, yeah. Uh, And that led to laws protecting protecting birds. Uh, (laughs) It's just, it's so strange, the conversations that have to happen before actual things uh, come as a result of them. Right, exactly. Women's fashion led to a whole bill protecting animals. So it's, it's, there you go. I mean, look at chinchilla fur. Um, Oh, I got stories about chinchillas. (laughs) My grandmother had some chinchillas. Really? Yeah, they they were supposed to be making babies and they didn't do so. So we we had some. Oh, no. they They were a little off. Oh. I don't know what was going on. Oh. I think she probably had all female. Oh, <laughs> okay. They, she yeah, just so, didn't sex them, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think they, I think she got scammed. Um, so Woodrow Wilson did sign um, oh, the yeah, authorization in 1913 for Hetch Hetchy, but he kind of makes up for it a little bit in 1916 yes. by by basically signing into authority the National Park Service, and it was done at the behest of a millionaire industrialist named Stephen Mather. Who is a really interesting person in his yeah. own right. Mm-hmm. Um, he travels to Yosemite National Park and he sees the condition that it's in. And he's absolutely dismayed by this. And what would be one of his greatest allies if he had lived longer, John Muir dies yeah. of pneumonia after visiting his daughter on a, on a brief trip in Southern California. Sadly, he, he dies in 1914. So the, the traditional voice... Mm-hmm. of the Sierra Club, who's come out to, to support and, and, and make a big stink about this every time this has happened, is no longer there. So Mather kind of picks up the, the torch, if you will. The mantle. The mantle. And he and he goes on to uh, very impassionately make some, some important changes and ends up being uh, sworn in as the assistant uh, to the Secretary of the Interior in 1915, which puts him in a position where he's able to uh, much more effectively communicate and, and fight and fight for his cause yeah um and he and he really he went on a crusade he uh, got support from you know leaders in in the industries at the time and also he, he was able to even generate support from school kids and newspapers and the media and um he got the national geographic society on board with him too and so this was basically how he was able to just really petition very loudly to encourage the this preservation ideal that he carried on from John Muir. Yes. And he himself actually did become the first director of the National Park Service when it was finally created in 1916. Um, and he... Uh, he began to like really work to protect the parks and as a quote from him for um, unimpaired, unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. So he was really um, an advocate for people to go enjoy these spaces. And, you know, it's sad that he himself battled with manic depression his entire life. He had, um, 
he had a lot of problems personally, but I feel like much like Mir was always happy when he was out in nature. I think he used these cause to help to uh, overcome those personal demons and, and, and persevere over them. Um, I will say that sadly he did die of a stroke in 1929, or sorry, 1930. He had a stroke in 1929 mm-hmm. uh, and died a year after that. Uh, but he would do a lot of important work during his time as the uh, the very first head of the national park system. And he would leave successors to, to really try to live up to his uh, his expectations. Right. And what I find really interesting about a lot of this, too, is, um, you know, there's over 400 uh, national parks, monuments, battlefields, beaches, wreck areas, etc., um, in, in the U S and, um, and that have all been created. And a lot of that did start off in the West just because it was easier to kind of close off a lot of this area that was all very untamed at the time anyway. Yeah. But don't forget, you know, the stuff going on, uh, there's stuff going on the East coast as well. You know, you've got, you know, national parks in DC and national monuments, especially in DC. Um, you have Shenandoah, uh, in Virginia, which, you know, the Blue Ridge mountains, which is freaking gorgeous. A lot of these amazing areas. And you you can watch it go. It's, it's kind of like a rubber band, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it gets stretched out all the way to California. Then then it it bounces back. back. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have, you know, the first real recognitions in California, but then Yellowstone gets created. And then you had, you know, 1919, uh, Grand Canyon becomes a national yeah. park. And then by 1926, you've moved all the way east to the Smoky Mountains. Yeah. Home of Dolly Parton, by the way. There you go. In case you were wondering. <laughs> and no, they're not real. And uh, She flat out admits it, though. She's proud of she it. She has to. She's proud of it. She's buoyant. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> She's also, she also has a buoyant personality. She's kind of amazing. <laughs> she does. That is true. That is true. It's that, it's that Smoky she is Mountain. She feisty. She's a feisty little lady. Appalachians. (laughs) Whoa. Love them. Anyhow. um, It also marked a time when we had a lot of other attention needing to be given to the parks themselves. So the park system's created and money actually is starting to come into it now, which is Mm -hmm. great uh, because to to counteract the great philosopher, the notorious um, (laughs) B.I.G., mo money in this case equals... Less problems. Yeah. So more money, no problems. Yeah. Yes. Well, not not no not no problems. There are still problems. There but are always still problems. They were trying to yeah. preserve them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's funny because Yellowstone keeps coming back into the picture. You know, Yellowstone at one point was really the only refuge of the American uh, buffalo. Uh, they had been so horribly yeah. uh, hunted to near extinction that really there was only like one remaining group in Yellowstone who, who would later breed and, and, and bring back that population. And I think they're now removed from the endangered list or they're, they're – I think so. They're maybe a um, at-risk animal, but I don't think they're on the endangered list any yeah. longer. I don't know. I could check Google. I don't got time. We got a lot more park stuff to talk about. Uh, but in 1926, the last of the remaining wolves in Yellowstone die. Oh, are gone. Yeah. And so this, again, brings to the attention of some really important philanthropists out there who start channeling money into national parks, and it does start to help. Uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr., of course, um, was brought in to help give the money necessary to save the Smoky Mountains, which mm-hmm. is which was important. Um, and more public attention after, I think really after the second or after the first world war, right. When we kind of reevaluated ourselves as a country and, and saw a lot of death and suffering and saw a lot of suffering in Europe by other peoples, you know, made us think 
even more about ourselves as a country and, and what was important to us, including these national parks that were now because of things like the transcontinental railroad being completed mm-hmm. and because of works that would later happen in terms of you know national highways being created more and more people were coming as tourists to these to these national parks right and it was um, it was really the influx of people that made an even last even more lasting impression and allowed for further expansion yeah which brings us to another Roosevelt mm FDR. 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 And his um, amazing wife, Eleanor. Oh, Eleanor. How we love with, you so. With the patience of a saint for... Well, she was married to FDR. With <laughs> staying married to that philanderer. <laughs> yeah, he was a bit of a... Um, we won't get into that. That's another episode. Anyhow, uh, we do have that, uh, you know, Roosevelt taking, taking reins of the nation at a really tricky time in our history. Yeah. Has his amazing, you know, five-year deal. Yes. And his plans that he puts into place. And in doing so, also develops in 1933 the Civilian Conservation Corps, which serves millions of young Americans. Initially, I think it was just like from 18 to 23 who didn't have a job. Yeah. You know, you got housing, you got food, you got a place to, to you know, relax for a couple right. of days, and you had a lot of hard work to do. Yeah. And then they expand that and make it available to a larger group of people. And millions of Americans start taking up these jobs and are taking jobs up in national parks and they're yeah. working to right some of these wrongs and renovate and make them uh, better places to, to be uh, thanks to the attention being given by Roosevelt. Can I, can I say something real quick? Yeah. I think that that as a program is amazing. How do we not have that right now? So here's, here's how I kind of feel like things should be. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, world. We're you know, I think, I think Nerds on History needs to do its first segment. <laughs> on it's different than the show. It's going to be called, <clears throat> let's do this right now. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nerds on History's Sarah Ashley's The Way Things Should Be. <laughs> well, this is this is just one woman's opinion, um, but I kind of like the idea of immediately after high school, U.S. citizens have to spend two years working in civics. Like some kind of AmeriCorps type thing, like going out, helping communities, learning stuff, being out in the world, and then they can go on to college and do all that other stuff. I just feel like that those two years of just embracing the world, understanding what it's like to live in different spectrums of the world or of the country at least – and kind of really getting a good feel for how, you know, how the world actually is. Plus, getting those two years where you don't actually have to make a full-fledged decision on what you need to do with your life just yet. I know I could have used an extra two years. But I think that would have been really benef- I think it'd be really beneficial. It'd be great learning experiences for a lot of people. And then you get a free education. Then, you, oh, yeah, yes. That's your, that's your ticket. That would be it. lovely. Yeah. For those who want it. I don't want to also be um, super presumptuous and say that everybody wants to go to college and that everybody don't should to. go to college. You don't need to. I, let's bring back apprenticeships. Let's yeah. bring back, tr- like, you know, actual uh, trade schools and things like that and encouraging that kind of stuff, too, because it's not college is not for everybody. And ladies and gentlemen, that was Sarah Ashley's The Way Things Should Be. <laughs> Oh, God. I'd... That was fun. Are we going to get into an editorial version you of the podcast? To, you, have, you, you have to do that. Every 
Well, every other we don't do it every episode. You no. gotta do it every once in a while. But then you have to begin it with now this is just one woman's opinion. That has to that has, has to be the first thing you yeah. say before you say anything you else. You know what really grinds my gears? <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, it's almost like you brought Estelle over from Nerds on a film little for bit. A also, in, in 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs Executive Order 6166, which consolidates all of the national parks, national military parks, national monuments, uh, and the 11 national cemeteries, national memorials, and national capital parks into a single park system. So this is separate from 1916 when the service was created, the National right. Park Service was created. This is a consolidation because up to that point, you had all these different departments having their hands in everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it, it brought everything under a single federally owned uh, agency that was responsible for everything. How great is that? Uh, you know, it, it made a big difference. Yeah. And it also started to enlarge existing national parks and added to more parks, made it easier to do so. Uh, this was a good thing. This yeah. needed to happen. Yeah. And, well, did you mention that uh, that also around 1933, they um, uh, basically created a, a wildlife division specific to the National Park Service? So yes. just to specifically have the interests of animals in mind. Which is good. It's important because obviously the wildlife is half the reason why these, you know, areas are surviving and thriving (laughs) is because of that's how nature works. Yeah. So obviously they need as much protection as well. So Uh, if we jump forward a few years into wartime America. Yes. Where um, fewer people are going to to national parks, obviously. Yeah. America's priorities right now are are dedicated. Yeah. And and, and this is even before we got into the fighting back when we were producing arms and supplies for our partner, Great Britain, Mm -hmm. uh, and sending those over and lend lease, getting what they needed to survive the Battle of Britain and and stay afloat as as an independent nation. And not under the iron, you know, rule of Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. So this this was a this is a very dramatic time in, in American history. And even still, we had some really amazing things going on in our parks, including the hiring of Ansel Adams, who's a yes. personal hero of mine. Oh my God! Adams died the year before I was born. Most beautiful landscape photography. I wish I could be him. Like like Ansel Adams. I've been to, when you go to Yosemite, there's the Ansel Adams uh, Museum that's there because he spent a lot of time in Yosemite. I mean, he went, he went and photographed many national parks and did a lot to, to remind the American population that you could go to these things and you could spiritually and, and mentally and physically renew yourself or however you wanted, whatever angle you felt connected to it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he reminded the American public of that. And in doing so, cemented his place in history as one of the world's greatest nature photographers. Yep. Um, and he he's, has to be more than just a quick footnote here on, on this episode. I wish we could spend more time, but uh, we're stating the significance and importance of, of people like Ansel Adams. If you want to go, just go to AnselAdams.com and see the the work from his original photography gallery and you'll see how just how stunning it truly is and even if you aren't super familiar with the name or you think that sounds familiar uh when you see the art you're going to recognize yeah it's these it's always these very stunning dramatic features within landscapes um and they're all black and white obviously 
color photography wasn't as big at this point, but <laughs> well, it, it, it was becoming more popular. It was more all the popular, time, but it, it was more popular wasn't... in the magazines and yeah. stuff like that. It yeah. was it wasn't being used as as uh, faithfully in art, right? And even after it had become more popular, Ansel Adams would continue to shoot in black and white. That was yeah. just his. That was his thing. Well, because yeah. I mean, one of the things that people recognize him the most for is being uh, for being a photographer is his use of shadow. Yes, and black and white does everything for shadow. <laughs> when, when you're working in the monotone. Uh, your um, your importance to emphasizing what you're looking at is all told through contrast. Yeah. Um, when you only have the grayscale to work in. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I love photography. I don't know. I don't really talk about my love of photography that much on you the show. You don't. No. But I, I really do. And Ansel Adams has always been an inspirational mm-hmm. individual for me. Uh, we gotta start wrapping up here pretty soon. So let's move forward uh, to the 1950s in a healing United States, recovering from the Second World War. And in the 1950s, there was this kind of carefree, go out and explore attitude yeah. that was being promoted, particularly when you're talking about the the expansion of the American highway system. Oh yeah, and the if and, you look and at, urban sprawl. Yeah, 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 and you had these cookie cutter neighborhoods. You know, they were mm-hmm. being propped. Track you know, ho- yeah. track housing. Everybody's getting a car now. Everybody's getting TV. The American dream. Yeah, exactly. This is this is that time. Uh, and it was Depressed really housewives, racism, all that. It's yeah, a glorious wor- time. Worst of all the Indiana Jones movies. Like this is this is an interesting time in American mm-hmm. history. Um, if you haven't seen the Crystal Skull, uh, yeah. good for you. Yeah, <laughs> please don't. don't. Anyhow, uh, just had channeled nerds on film for a minute. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 1951, uh, Conrad uh, Worth becomes the then director of the National Park Service. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, proposes what he calls Mission 66, uh, which is his plan to help expand um, the the tourism in these parks uh, and make them even more populous by 1966. He wants more and more people coming to them. And, of course, that all correlates with the fact that the American highway system, like Route 66, were all being laid down and built at this time. And Americans were encouraged to get in your car and go out there. Yeah, road trip. (laughs) And this is perfect because, you know, up to this point, getting into these parks was still quite a challenge if you didn't have a really, you know, honky car to get in there and get on in there and do that. You got to have these great big old wheels and you got to be able to to, to not get stuck in the mud. Yeah. And that's not what most Americans are driving in the 1950s. They're driving these big steel low to the ground monstrosities that needed a, a proper highway to get to where they wanted like to go. Like Chevy Nomad station wagons and yeah. whatnot. So 56 sees the interstate <laughs> highway system authorized and construction begins on Mission 66. Yeah. Which, um, you know, just for a little reference, you know, he proposed the 66 plan when there were about 62 million visitors a year in 1955. By 1960, visitor attendance already reached 80, 80 million. million. 80 million! Which is huge. It's <laughs> crazy. It's so crazy. Um... You know, and and also the idea of these national monuments, national parks, everything becoming really iconic. Um, if you think about the 1960s, and one of the first things I always think about is, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. Delivering his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial, a national monument That's that right. only exists and is protected because of, you know, the national park system. So, and the entire national mall. And, and, you know, the the Million Man March and all these things like that, they're happening in these grand iconic places. These public places. These public places. Where politics could not control or affect them. No, absolutely not. And that's it, a, a beautiful thing. Makes me yeah, proud. It does. It really does. 
to think that even the, the national park system played a role in such a, a critical uh, part of the still ongoing civil rights movement in this country. Yeah. Uh, 1972 sees the 100-year birthday of Yellowstone National Park. And yep. by that time, we were seeing 165 million visitors, double Which what we had seen just 12 years earlier. Insanity. Insanity. And even though when even when you go to national parks, you know, these days, it's still you kind of actually it's it hasn't gotten to full Disneyland levels where you need to perfectly <laughs> schedule your time to go. Yeah. But you really have to pay attention to God. When's it going to be super packed? Yeah. That you won't be able to even necessarily enjoy all the scenery because That's there's right. people in your way. <laughs> and, you know, what it also does is it brings more and more attention to the fact that uh, the wildlife that are in these parks are at risk and that yep. our tourism affects that. Oh, yeah. And conservationists and scientists and, and just environmentalists alike were continually bringing this point to the government to the point where President Nixon signs the Endangered Species Act in 1973. One of the few good things he actually did while he was in office. Oh, that's right. Because <laughs> even a crook can be convinced to do something good. Yeah. Well, as long as it's good for re-election. That's right. um, but, <laughs> but I mean, I, what's interesting about all that and kind of, you know, the the fact that we needed that act so much in order to protect the species that are there is this, you know, idea that, that very few – there's something that humans in big populations, especially white people, sorry, that we're it's not true. very good at. And it's living symbiotically with our planet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> white people are bad at that. We can say that because we are two white people. Yeah, we're just bad we're just at bad. it. Yeah, bad, bad there are lots people. of populations on this planet that are really bad at it. And there, yeah. there are still populations that are really good at it. Yeah. And we should l be learning more from that. <laughs> but, you know, in all seriousness, though, I mean, I mean, that is not to suggest that what's saying is not serious. But yeah, uh, the, the truth behind it is every time mankind has gotten too big for its britches mm -hmm. the environment has suffered yeah and that that's that's just population yeah any animal population is gonna gonna go through that Same just thing. you know folks there's something going on down the street here so if you're hearing some like sirens we've had to cut out a couple of helicopters yeah, and more it's, sirens it's a little intense over and you know what right we're now. getting to the end of the episode we just don't care anymore yeah because you know what that's good radio that's how important this is yeah but we're talking about we got we got yeah sirens and my dog howling in the background you yeah, well, you probably can hear, hear Luna Howell. I can hear yeah. her. Yeah, Chester, and Hunter next door, which Chester is the other does lab. The same thing, <laughs> but Chester only howls at ambulances. That's interesting. Isn't that very peculiar? Yeah, Luna's not, she, she indiscriminate. Howls at anything. Yeah, yeah no, Chester good. only howls at ambulances. Yeah, Chester's an odd fellow. I love that dog. He's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, um, as as we move into the the modern uh, decade, as you move into to 2016 every president since the roosevelts has pretty mm -hmm. much um taken as part of their their presidency the the kind of rite of passage if you will in creating new, new national parks yeah. and and areas of historical importance and scientific well, importance jimmy carter in 1978 uh used the antiquities act to create 17 national monuments oh, in alaska yeah. he was jimmy carter <laughs> yeah which is great because uh, if there's any place that needs to be preserved it's alaska oh my god yes uh, that is definitely on my bucket list and you know ever since um muir went to glacier bay yeah you know, it, it, the importance of it has just become more and more 
public. But, yeah. you know, Alaska was one of the last territories to become a state mm-hmm. and was just so out of the public consciousness for a long yeah. time. And even out of local Alaskans' consciousness for a long time. Because it's hard to get around in Alaska. you got to fly everywhere. you got to take boats everywhere. You know, it, it's, it's difficult to get to these places. You have to ride so. a moose everywhere. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's hard. And moose, also, moose actually, are very dangerous. Actually, this is really crazy. So this is a fun story. Um, uh, my boyfriend's mother, who is, you know, uh, she's a soil scientist, um, she went to go do some work, um, some survey work up. Which, in... by the way, equals badass. Oh no, she's she's amazing. She's one of the forefront researchers on climate change and its effects on soil. So super freaking cool. Um, but she uh, she spent some time in Alaska doing some field research up there, and she had to uh, do a gun safety course and get you know her license and all that other stuff because if you're going and you're camping out in Alaska, you need a gun. Because of bears and moose. Yeah. Because <laughs> that, it's just frightening up there. The wild is crazy up there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that should be preserved. It should. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it should. Everything should be preserved. Nature is important. It's super important. And all different types. I'm not a desert person, but even I think the deserts need to be of course. beautifully preserved and everything like that. This is our legacy. Yeah. You know, our, our planet and its environment is our legacy. It is the cradle of our civilization, of, of humanity. Mm-hmm. If we didn't have all of this, we would not exist. And if we want to continue existing, it has to continue to exist. Yes. And it's it's sad that it took as long as it did for that to get the, the kind of funding that it needed. Yeah. And some argue that, hey, it's still not being funded well enough. In fact, you're right, in my personal sure. opinion. Um, I'm the type of person that whenever I go to like a state park or something like that, and it's like, oh, pay for parking, but it's not attended i still give them my six bucks for parking yeah they need it they need the money (laughs) trust me i know i I work for the county park system here as a volunteer i do trail watch for for uh, joseph grant park Mm -hmm. and um and we need every penny every penny absolutely Uh, a couple other quick footnotes before we finish up here tonight uh ronald reagan added 18 new units to the national park system during his time as president uh george herbert walker bush added 14 President Bill Clinton, 19. Nice. A little bit of a, little bit of a contest going yeah. on here. Uh, a little George bit of W. <laughs> George W. only added seven. Shock there. Uh, and then we He was a little got... preoccupied. <clears throat> I usually leave my <laughs> politics out of the show. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? Do oh, you? Well, I try. Yeah. I try really hard. We and all that's try hard really for hard. someone from the Bay Area to leave their politics out as much as I do. Oh, that, that, I should get a freaking medal. Do you? Do you know how much I keep my politics to myself? Uh, yes, because you know how many conversations we have after we're done recording? Yeah, and even <laughs> even from those conversations, I'm still keeping it in. Oh, I, I am a woman of many opinions. Oh, I, oh I'm <laughs> well aware. Uh, and of course, good old Obama up to date. Hey, 19. Mm-hmm. You know what? That's respectable. Good job. Good on you, buddy. Good on you. Good on all, good on all of them. Good on good every, on every actually, president who's ever done that. Here good we on go. Them. Like, clearly, national parks are a bipartisan issue. That is yeah. fantastic. I love it. Something that we can all get along on. Huzzah. Huzzah. So, Ooh. should we get into some listener feedback? Oh, let's do. This week in listener feedback. All right, so our first piece of listener feedback comes from Jorin. Um, subject, great. Oh. That's all. <laughs> uh, dear Brian, and er- uh, Brian, Eric, and Sarah... I am enjoying your podcast, Nerds on History, very much. For me, it's the perfect combination of humor, historical issues, and interesting insights. You are all so perfectly informed on on the great diversity of subjects. I very much like the nuanced way you treat a topic. 
the digital for Elise song, of course, is quite ugly. Sorry, but I guess that's a product <laughs> of your humor as well. Thanks a lot. Greetings from Rotterdam, the Netherlands. I quite like the song personally. However, I do feel it, it, it's, it's need time. Of a I feel it's time to retire it. We've talked about this. There's been yeah. some t- conversation in the nerd cave. No mm-hmm. consensus has been yet reached. Yeah. The whole the whole point of doing it as a as an eight bit digital type thing was because of the fact that we're nerds. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's charming that way. But Indeed. if you disagree, well then, sheesh, clearly we must change it. So. Well, you know, the, the Netherlands know what's going on. That That's true. They do. Um, I'm going to pass this one over to Eric because I really want to see how he pronounces this because I don't know how to pronounce it either. Yeah, quite to our listeners' dismay, especially the people who are writing this feedback, um... I don't normally get the opportunity to read as much feedback. I've noticed that Brian and Sarah usually take it over because I'm, I'm so awful at reading because I'm dyslexic that uh, it, just, I, it always comes out wrong. So I'm happy because I get to read. Um, why is this one difficult? Do you not see the subject? Oh. Yeah. I thought you meant the name of our uh, listener. Nope. Who is Allison, by the way, which is mm-hmm. an easy name for me to pronounce. Yeah. Um, uh or bust is the title. Alcibiades? Okay, so we're just going to move on from the subject and hope the rest of the email goes well. No, because it mentions it in there as well. Cry. It's a Do you know how to say it? You're just torturing me? Not really. I can look. Hold on. I can look it up on how to pronounce it. Okay, you do that while I start reading it because you know me. Okay, message says, hi, y'all. Y'all's for Sarah. I, I'll also take, if I can have one of the L's, just because yeah. I want to be left out. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name is Allison, and I've been listening for a while. What finally prompted me to write in was the most recent history podcast, Sarah's Solo Feedback Spectacular. Feedback about the feedback. So meta. Uh, let me give you a little background. I majored in anthropology, classics, and studio arts. How and why is entirely an entirely different story. The focus of this background is in the classics. One of the required courses for this major was Greek art and archaeology, uh, which I took about three years ago. One of the figures I had to study and write about was the word that Eric can't say. I, I got it right here. Hold on. Hold yeah, on. I studied uh, ancient Egypt because there were no written vowels. So I just make up words however I wanted and they sounded great. Alcibiades. Alcibiades. That was my second guess. Alcibiades. (laughs) Thank you, howtopronounce.com. You know, I'm actually quite ashamed because I think if I just slowed down, I probably could have done it. Anyway, Alcibiades. uh, He is an ancient Greek I both love and hate for his audacity alone. This brings me back to Sarah's Soul Feedback Spectacular. Sarah mentioned you guys were still undecided on what route or perspective on ancient Greece to take. I beg you. To resolve or revolve it around uh, Alcibiades. Uh, I also have what I believe to be the perfect cold open. So actually, you know what? We should hold Save on to that, that just, just in case in we decide case. to use it. Yes. So Allison then goes on to tell us a little bit more about this cold open and ideas around it. And that is wonderful. And I swear we will bring that into some sort of life later. We'll do something. Uh, Anyway, she says, uh, I'm new to this whole actually initiating contact with humans from podcasts, but y'all, Sarah, are the first thing I ever wrote into. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you. She says, don't blink, live long and prosper and believe in yourself. Allison, you little nerd. You You are awesome. That's fantastic. I love you. 
That was great. Okay, we still have more feedback. Um, also, on more Greek topics. Uh, this one is from our good old friend Dino. Dino the Greek. Dino! Because, of course, he's going to write in something about Greek topics. He says, hello, my beautiful fellow nerds. I heard Sarah's and de facto other nerds on History Nerds ask for Greek topics. So I liter- so literally, after I heard, jotted down some quick ideas. Um, I'm not going to read through the whole thing because it's a long uh, feedback, but he mentions the National Schism. The Olympics, which I think is really cool. Ooh, hey, uh, we got those coming up. I know. I think we. I think that should be really fun. Mm. Wonders of the ancient world. But I think you guys already did something similar, right? You know what? Right? It's wonderful. We can do it again. We can do it again. He um, said, with Brexit, you can do do odd referendums either because of the aftermath or results. So uh, yeah. Brexit, Greek bailout referendum, um, and things along those lines. Brexit still sounds like a detergent. It anyway. does. It does indeed. I think we should also do one on the European Union, uh, but I think that would, I think that'd be an interesting topic. Um, hmm. The Byzantine Empire. Um, he said you've also discussed the papacy mul- multiple times. So either doing the patriarch in Constantinople. Yes, he's in Istanbul, but a very small part of Istanbul is still called Constantinople for the Greek Orthodox Church. Hmm. Um, and uh, along with that topic, maybe wheel episode on religious leaders, patriarchs of the Orthodox Churches, Dalai Lama. Uh, Hubbard, if, if we consider that a religion. <laughs> so, a few ideas for yous. Sciendino. P.S. Sarah, I am so sorry. I guess I did not have enough rage for the pens to help the sharks because the sharks absolutely lost the Stanley Cup. Um, but they that's did, okay. They did, but no team truly ever has it because they always have to give it away. Well, sure. So when you think of it like that, they did... really lost nothing because they were just going to have to give it up anyhow. Eric, first of all, you don't know what you're talking about, so shut up. That's true. Second I don't of sport. All, <laughs> second of all, um, I'm really proud of our boys from getting as far as they did. And that's the first time they've ever made it to the Stanley Cup final. So I'm just going to be really happy about that. Wait, hockey's the one where they put the little Apple TV on the shut ice, up. right? <laughs> just you're so no. mean. No. You're just so mean. Um, and he said, PPS, if you do need any help, especially with Greek topics, let me know. And I am always uh, available to help. Hmm. Um and then he actually gave us his email and his number, and he said, holy word, I'm not going to say, I'm really trusting yous, mainly Sean, with giving my number. <laughs> that is a bit of a risk, isn't it? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm reasonably confident you won't receive any obscene uh, voicemails. Yep. Although, I can't really speak for Sean, so who knows? Uh, and then we're going to give this last bit of feedback to Eric to finish up, and it's also a long one, so have fun with that. Alrighty, this one comes from Leanne, uh, which I really quite enjoy that name. It's a good name. It's very fond of that name. It says, sup nerds. Hey girl. Hey. And I guess you guys too. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, I discovered y'all just last month and I've been uh, voraciously catching up. I listen at work. Voraciously? Voraciously, voraciously. I'm going to go voraciously because I like it. Okay. Uh, You can have your y'alls on my voraciously's. Great. Uh, I listen at work and I just... Uh, hit the uh, Jacobites. I'm going to start Nerds on Film more seriously. Oh, boy. Uh, It's just a wee bit more overwhelming since I have to skip around to stuff I've seen. Sure, that's fair. That's fair. Good point, yeah. Eric, oh, that's me. Uh, I wanted to thank you for your contributions to the Tut episode. It's a bit silly, but despite being a total classics nerd, I've always been a bit irrationally scared of Egyptian things. Because when I was little, my dad tried to have... Uh, try to let me have a special treat by staying up to watch a documentary. Unfortunately, it was a History Channel documentary all about the supposed curse, which convinced me I would die the next time I got a bug bite 
for even thinking about the tomb. Oh my God. Obviously I know better now, but nevertheless, I was really enjoying, uh, really enjoyed hearing someone who is so passionate about the subject debunk it so thoroughly. Well, uh, my dear, please worry, worry not. You'll be just fine. As you know now by listening to the episode, I'm sure your father was just trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Sometimes we fathers accidentally traumatize our children with science. And it's an accident. And history. Yeah, but I'm that's sorry. okay. We all have irrational fears around here. <laughs> yeah. Now I, we're going to watch some uh, documentary on Ebola. Well, it's like, I mean, Brian's got xenomorphs. I've got volcanoes. I got Eric, boats. Eric's got boats. Ugh. We all have irrational fears. It's totally okay. Own yeah. them. Be proud. Yeah. There's a reason why we haven't done a Titanic episode. Uh, Sarah, I bleep. I I threw my own bleep in there Uh just for fun. Love your sense of humor, intelligence, and voice of sanity among (laughs) the word vomit from your male colleagues' mouths. (laughs) Yep. Thanks. (laughs) Awesome. Such such uh, such generosity. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, Do you have a passionate opinion on the Sarah versus Sarah debate? And she she puts these two... Sarah with an H versus without. Uh Uh, Any fave episodes of Nerds on Film you recommend starting with? Uh, And those are her two questions to you, so I'll let you answer. Okay, so uh, Nerds on Film episodes that I suggest you listen to. uh, There's a Peter Pan episode. There's a Princess Bride episode. Ironically, both of those are ones that just Brian and I did together. I thought those were really good. They're Mm -hmm. from, like, way in the early years. Um, Yeah. any of the Mel Brooksbury ones, so like Young Frankenstein and stuff like that, any of the Mel Brooksbury episodes are always my favorite just because it's my favorite time of year. Oh, yeah. Um, Christmas episodes are always a good one because most most likely you've seen the Christmas movies we're talking about. Um, and then any of the ones where we're talking about Star Wars. The, that's just the one where it's like full-fledged nerd and you kind of can't handle it. So those are my favorites. Um, as for the Sarah versus Sarah debate... Um, I do believe that Sarah with an H is the more traditional spelling there. And, you know, it's the spelling that I have. So I do have a slight preference for it. However, I don't feel like it's a thing that people need to get into fights about. I don't think one type of Sarah is better than the other. One's just more modern. And as somebody who's a champion for linguistics and constantly evolving language, I accept uh, new spellings of, you know, words and names and such. Just to add a little word vomit into this. Yeah. Um, I, I prefer the Sarah with the with the J at the end. Ah. <laughs> uh, or the Sarage. Yeah. As I like to say it. Yes. Actually, my Uber driver today, my Uber driver, Carlos from Bolivia, uh, called me Sarita. Ooh. Yeah, little Sarah. <laughs> I was oh. like, okay, that's kind of cute. That's that's. I'm like, darling. thanks, random stranger. <laughs> <laughs> You're now endeared to me forever. Yes. <laughs> Only because we were having a nice conversation. If he was a really random dude who was like... Calling me that in the beginning of a conversation, be like, who the hell do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he, he was very endearing me and was telling me about his kids and stuff like that. Oh, so that's yeah. very nice. Yeah. She goes on to say, Brian, as someone who went to Catholic school until college, I like to imagine that we're rivals. Every time a topic demands Catholic knowledge, I try to guess what you'll talk about and match my knowledge against yours. Ooh. Catholic versus Catholic. Uh, I work and go to school in New York City, but I'm from Maryland and China and England the Portsmouth thing from way back had me actually screaming. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to pronounce it right. Uh, so you can put me wherever the wall has a listener gap. I just wanted to mention one tiny thing in the feedback from the Pirates episode. Somebody suggested Appalachia. And then you started talking about doing a history of the American South. 
While there is a lot of overlap, Appalachia uh and the South imply two separate areas and cultural identities. Very true. That is very, Um, very true. Perhaps both can be added to the list. Also request for LGBT stuff, please, and thank you. Oh, I would love to. That sounds good to me. I'd love to. Uh, Anyway, thanks for such a great podcast. Keep it nerdy, Leanne. I'm exhausted. That was a... That was a long piece of feedback, but thank you so much, guys. Um, If you want to shoot us feedback, you can do so by going to nerdonomy.com, clicking that Talk to Us button. Uh, It'll shoot an email straight to all of us, or you can go to social media, go to Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, send us a message through there. More than likely, you're going to get a response from us because Brian handles social media and he's bored sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If not, it'll get read on the podcast most likely. We try to get through a lot of it. We can't get through everything. Um, If you're really feeling brave, you can leave us a voicemail. That number is available on nerdonomy.com as well as our P.O. box in case you want to send something. Yeah, or, you know, even just make a small donation. Yeah, if you want to click that donate button and just give a little bit of cashola to keep this uh, train running. Yeah, we we, we love what we do, but we also have families. I have children. Yep. So my my money goes to their mouths. Yeah. uh, And then also to the things that cover their rears because I have two very young children. So, you know, it helps to keep things going if you help out a little bit. Fig leaves? I didn't think those cost very much. You know, I've got several fig trees in the back here. Now you know why. Oh, there we go. That's right. <laughs> uh, but the most important thing that you guys can do is just spread the word of nerd. Please do. Tell your friends all about our podcast. Uh, share with them uh, all that we talk about with history, all that we talk about with film on the other podcast. Um, or give us a review on iTunes. That's cool, too. Speaking of which, we have recently passed over 100 reviews in iTunes and are still maintaining a four and a half star rating. Four For and a half this out podcast. Of five. For this podcast. That's pretty impressive. Right here. We're not going to talk about nerds on film. Eh, it's fine. That one's a little bit more dismal. No, it's, it's doing okay. Yeah. It's all right. It's it's floating. It's holding its own. <laughs> it's a great show. Yep. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so. Anyway, it's that time again, nerds. Do you not remember how to say it? Oh, wait. Hold on. I have never been allowed to say You've this never part. Never been allowed to, close, allowed to close it out. Never. Go ahead. And we've been doing this for years. Do it. It's that time again. Stay nerdy. Tune into us next time. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Bye. Adios. You did a really good job. I'm very proud. So, you're, uh... Still stay in a tree, huh? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. That, uh, that squirrel there is getting a little uh, friendly with you. Mm. <laughs> yep. Going up your pant leg. And you're still standing there. Still a tree. You're still a tree. Still a tree. Mm-hmm. Ah, God damn it! That's... Ah. I knew you'd break. Get it out! <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>